So if you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Mark chapter 12. I don't know about you, but I've always wondered how to connect the dots um, during the season of Lent from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. Now, there are um, different traditions in a more liturgical church, meaning more, uh, more churches that do more ritualistic type things where they have Good Fridays, so they talk about the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus, and then they get to uh, Sunday. But we go from Palm Sunday where Jesus is being praised and worshiped and as a hero riding in on a little donkey, and, and so people are thrilled that he's coming in, and we see this happen, and then we get back the next week in church, and he's been killed. Right, And so it's kind of wondering, and, and you know, preachers were tempted to say, well, the people that were praising him are the ones that killed him. Well, we don't know that really for sure, but we don't know what really got us there. And I want to go back to Mark chapter 8 just briefly, just to help us connect the dots where Jesus is telling that this is going to happen, and his disciples, specifically Peter, get upset with him for what he's telling them is gonna happen. So in Mark chapter eight, verse 27, this is just building up to where we are today as we fill in the gaps of how um, from the entrance of Jesus to the death of Jesus to his resurrection, there's a lot that takes place. So in Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse 27, and Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus foretold what we're watching happen, building up in Mark chapter 12. He told them that people might understand my identity of what they hope for with a Messiah, with a rescuer, but they don't understand the implications of what that means. And so he explained to them clearly what that means. It meant that Jesus would be rejected by the Hebrew leaders, by the scribes, by the prophets, and by by their will and desire, he will then be handed over and put to death. He's telling them clearly. And so on Palm Sunday, we see Jesus rise, riding in, where everybody thought this was a warrior king coming in to overthrow the Roman Empire so that the Jewish people might once again be on top of the world. But instead, he came in humility, ultimately to be brutalized and killed. So in Mark chapter 12, we see him going and uh, in, at the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12, getting in these confrontations with various groups of Jewish people. And they're trying to trap him and they're trying to catch him so that they can get him arrested and get him killed. But every time they're trying to come after him, he foils their attempts. And so there's a frustration mounting from different groups of people he has told the Pharisees um, that, hey, you pay taxes to Caesar, what's owed to Caesar, and you give to God what is owed to God. The Herodians and the Pharisees came to him. Herodians were very politically connected to the Roman Empire, but Jewish people, and so they liked their political control. The Pharisees loved their authority over the law and the fact that they were right and everybody else was wrong, and so they're trying to trap Jesus. We see the priests and the scribes coming trying to challenge Jesus, and he tells a parable of a vineyard where the tenants um, ultimately are withholding from the owner what is rightfully the owner's, and so ultimately the owner will come and judge them and destroy them. 
So you have all these tensions building. And so we pick up today in another, another confrontation with a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group that were politically charged, but primarily in the temple. They were the wealthier group that wanted to, um, that liked having the control that they had. They were on peaceable terms with the Roman Empire because they didn't want to infringe upon their liberties. But at the same time, they also had direct control over the priests and who got voted in as the priests and who were able to have authority within the religious context. And so this group of people came to Jesus next to try to stomp him. The main thing I want us to really hope in today is this, that there is a promise of resurrection and fullness of life for those who are in Christ. Back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, they will betray me, they will kill me, and after three days later, I will rise again. Already on two or three occasions, in the gospel of Mark alone, Jesus speaks of his resurrection. The Tanakh, which is the Hebrew word for what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, is um, full of references of Messiah and then resurrection. But the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. It's called a Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible often attributed to being written by Moses. And I believe that Moses wrote the majority of that, if not all of it. It's by his hand. And so the Sadducees only hold on. If Moses didn't say it, then no one said it. But they were still coming in through the lens of what their agenda was and what they wanted to see happen. So verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, that the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Okay, first of all, that's a lot of husbands for one lady to have. Right, ladies? Amen. I mean, good night. The reason that the Hebrew law said that, and if you go with me to Deuteronomy real quick, um, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, this is where they got this law from. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So what he's saying is there's a lineage passing on. It's important for the bloodline of the Jewish people, and it's important as it pertains to the inheritance of the family. And so when you read the book of Ruth, that is what Boaz is fulfilling as a kinsman redeemer taking on a relative's wife once that, uh, so Ruth's husband died, and so Boaz then stepped in to take over his responsibility because they're in the same family. And so the Sadducees are coming, giving this hyperbolic example. Say a man has a wife and the guy dies, and the up to seven people. Then the wife dies with no son. And then in the resurrection, whose wife will she be then? Okay, I'm gonna teach you basic Bible study methods. Go back with me to verse 18. Here's the first problem. 
And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. Do you understand the ridiculousness of this conversation? The Sadducees, who do not believe in resurrection, come to Jesus and start questioning him about the resurrection. So Jesus would have been right to say, you're ridiculous. And so he kind of does, but he's much more Jesus-like about that. Go with me and look what it says in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I mean, this is God's son speaking to a group of people who are trying to stump him based upon a theoretical question of an issue that they don't even believe in. The reason that they are wrong is one, they don't understand the scriptures. They don't know them. They don't understand what God's word actually says. And second of all, they don't know the power of God. They have not experienced the power of God. They have not read of the powerful way that God had performed throughout history. They are not aware of the power of God at work in the Messiah, Jesus. They are ignoring God's power. And so Jesus doesn't even begin by saying, you don't even believe in the resurrection. What are you even talking about? He pushes beyond the ridiculousness and gets to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue isn't even that they're trying to stump Jesus. The heart of the issue is they don't honor or value the word of God and they don't know or have not experienced the power of God. And so he begins by saying, look, you don't know scriptures, you don't know the power of God, and mind you, these are the people who are helping to assign the priests in the temple. It's like allowing people into power in a ministry who don't have any knowledge of God, but they have wealth or influence. Do you know the scriptures? Do you know the power of God? If not, then what you're doing is developing a kingdom of your own that becomes very dangerous. For when they rise from the dead, verse 25, so Jesus is then bringing some explanation, but he doesn't go into too many details of what heaven is like at this point. He just corrects a few points where they're wrong. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. You are quite wrong. When he speaks of Moses in Exodus 3, going to the burning bush, God doesn't say, I was the God of these people. He says, I am the God of these people. For they were even justified to the extent that the Messiah was revealed, justified by their faith in the God that was revealed to them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were, were always justified by faith. And as God reveals himself more in the means by which God 
created and implemented the way for us to be redeemed through his son, Jesus Christ, it still remains the same. Our only chance of being right with God and our only hope of resurrection with God is by trusting in the means that God provides, which is his son. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God is a faithful God who makes promises and who keeps promises. And these Sadducees are coming up trying to find Jesus and trap Jesus in a way that gets him in trouble so that they can remove Jesus. Not because they even really believe in what he's saying, but because they care so much about their own power and authority. So Jesus corrects them. And it's interesting to me, as Jesus talks about they're not given in marriage in the way we are here after the resurrection. That doesn't mean that we don't have relationships with those that we've known here. It doesn't mean that those relationships are terminated once this life is over. But those relationships and the function of those relationships are different. What's interesting to me when you talk to many people, and at times myself included, when they talk about what they're most excited about when they get to heaven, is that they get to be with friends, family members, and some argue about maybe pets. I'm not certain that's the case, but that's another conversation. Definitely fluffy. He licked my face when I asked him if he wanted to trust Jesus. That's another conversation. But we're more excited about the people we'll see than becoming face to face with our Savior. The point of the resurrection and eternity is that we allow and have our faith become sight. That the object of our salvation, the hope of our salvation, goes from a confident assurance of what we hope for is going to happen, the evidence of things not yet seen, to fruition. Being completely liberated from the effects of sin and the brokenness that it has on life to be rightly and properly once again face-to-face with the one who made us. And if he makes us, since he makes, made us, he knows us. And he knows even the things that we can hide to everyone else around us, but he chooses to proactively love us anyways. And he chooses to love us in an unconditional, ongoing, persevering, lasting, and consequential way. So that at the resurrection, we no longer go from this distance, but to this intimacy that we get to have with our Savior and our Maker. They're caught up in the prize of, well, which wife, which husband will she have? Jesus says that's not even what's important. Because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. Our family, our spouses, our friends, our gifts from God to remind us of God's faithfulness, either through the blessing of intimacy or through the sanctification, that means the process of becoming more like Christ, of conflict. So when you're, you and your spouse are in a rough spot, Long-term Christian, it's still a blessing because God's using it and working in it for your good. 
When your friendships are strained, maybe God's rightfully reapportioning your faith, not in that which you can see, but in the one who has made promises that are kept, who you cannot yet see. That he's realigning those things for us to be more deeply found in him. I've talked to several people, some of whom have lost a lot in the storm, but I've heard many believers say we believe that God has used the horrible nature of Harvey as a sort of cleansing to realign our hearts and our minds towards things that are most important. Because we, we get so consumed by our stuff and our appearances that all of a sudden the flood rushes in and we become unified because our humanity is real and our statuses matter much less. The heart of Jesus as he confronts these different groups isn't just to embarrass them, but to correct them. This group is coming, doubting in God's faithfulness to keep his promises, ignoring huge parts of scriptures that by and large the Hebrew faith had believed in, bought into, and taught. But because of their ignorance and their arrogance, they missed the Savior altogether. Because their hearts had become hardened, they could not see the truth of who God is. Verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Church, even when we all inevitably one day face death, which we all will, if we are in Christ, we have the promise of life. And not life set apart, and not life in a continuation of struggling and hard relationships, but in a life in the presence of our Maker, fully alive, fully satisfied, forever and ever. So, the first thing we can draw from this is that knowing the scriptures is an important part of knowing and experiencing God. I know some of you have come out of legalistic backgrounds, and legalistic has an undercurrent or a thought of you have to do these things to remain right with God. You have to do these things so that God will continue to love you. You have to behave yourself in these ways, otherwise you will no longer have favor with God. And I think that still makes you the object of salvation based upon your performance. I think people get caught up all the time. Well, where did my faith come from? Did God give it to me or did I give it to me? Because I believed. I believe God gave it to you. But the question really isn't the origin of faith. It's the object of it. Who or what are you believing in for your salvation and for your liberty and your freedom? Are you believing in your ability to behave better or to be smarter? Or are you believing and hoping in God's promise and his only way that he made for his, through his son Jesus for you to be redeemed? So if it is the object, the person of our faith, then our response to that gift is one of joyful obedience. And I just want to say this. There are times that joy comes after obedience. But our culture says if you don't feel joy or feel like it, then you don't have to obey. That's a newer advent of things. We obey because we believe Christ is the source of joy. 
And if we want more joy, then we want to pursue Christ more. And so it's not a merit of staying right with God or not right with God. It's because we've been made right with God. We want to know God. And one of the primary ways that God makes himself known to us today is through his written word. That's why I urge you, church, be people of Scripture. Be people of the word, men and women of the word, boys and girls of the word. When I first became a Christian, I had no idea where to start. And so I got a book called The Idiot's Guide to the Bible. As I later read the New Testament, apparently it's wrong to call people idiots. So the book I was holding apparently was somewhat sinful, but I read the whole thing. It was like a Cliff's Notes of the Bible. I'm the type of person, if I'm going to go watch a movie, I like to see a preview. Because I want to know what's coming. And so I tell people, read the introduction to the books of the Bible. Read the introduction to the New Testament, introduction to the Old Testament, and then start digging in. If you want to know the power of God and the power of his resurrection, we've got to know what his promises are. Because I don't know about you, I've been told a lot of promises of God that are not found in Scripture. One of the biggest lies that is perpetuating, meaning ongoing, in our world that is devastating third world countries is a prosperity gospel. What they say is if you have enough faith and you believe enough, you won't be sick and you will be rich. And impoverished nations are believing in that and therefore they're going after the hand of God instead of intimacy with the person of God. The promise of the gospel isn't stuff and wealth and health. The promise of the gospel is intimacy with God himself. We get the Savior We get the treasure in our wealth or in our poverty. We get his love and his faithfulness and his commitment first to himself as he promised to Abraham in his covenant. And then we get to benefit from it. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. While many of us in this room are blessed even beyond average, the blessing itself isn't a replacement for God. It's a poor A poor replacement. Stuff perishes, it goes away, but the love of God is eternal. And that's our hope. If we're chasing after God like a genie in a bottle that will give us good stuff if we behave, we've made Jesus into an older version of Santa. Which creates not a worshipful heart based on gratitude and honor, but creates a heart of entitlement and disappointment. Knowing the scriptures is an important part of knowing and experiencing God. Jesus is saying you don't know the word of God, therefore you don't know the power of God. Knowing the scriptures, living into the scriptures, allows us to begin to see the power of God. It was amazing to me seeing stories of many of you and seeing friends of mine all throughout the city joining together for a common purpose, placing great value on the lives of others that they never met, doing for others as they would have them do for them, seeing humanity come together, even those who don't even know Christ, but as image bearers, something was drawn out in our community to go and to serve and to help. That was a good deed. The fact is, though, even as good as you might have been or are being, those good deeds are not enough to make you right with God. Those good deeds coming out of you, especially if it really comes from a motivation of wanting to help, are a sign that there's a helpful God who has created you. But if you do not know Jesus Christ, you're still at odds with God and your motives are off. 
That desire within to help our fellow human being is not one that I'm trying to diminish, but one that the gospel amplifies. That yes, that desire in you is from a God who loves and saves and sins. And until we become people of the word, and, and not in a jerky, legalistic way, but in one that brings liberty, which it does, we'll never know if we're walking with God or not. I think many of you are motivated more by superstition in your faith than you are by God's love and his grace. I was talking to a good friend the other day and he said, man, I haven't been in the word lately. I've been so busy. So I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I said, that's not biblical, that's superstition. It doesn't mean that God doesn't permit or cause at times things in our lives to draw us back to himself. But we don't wanna continue to have to be the three-year-old spiritual kid that has to get slapped on our hand before we'll obey. We need to mature in our faith, knowing what the word of God says and do it. Look, reading your Bible is not going to save you. The God who is revealed in the Bible will. Say it again, reading your Bible is not what saves you. The God of the Bible that is revealed can and will. So we read the scriptures and we know the scriptures not to earn anything, but because it's been given to us completely anyways. That's the motivation, the why behind it. The second thing is we look to Jesus because Jesus reveals the nature and truth of the Father and his creation. The Sadducees bought into what they wanted God to be and how they wanted God to work and they had their view of what they thought God should be and how God should do it and so that was their worldview. That is what they believed and how they engaged with their religion. It was tailored to their life and to how they wanted to be and how they wanted to live. But really, when we begin living out our faith, before we look to a denomination, before we look to a network, we've gotta to look to Jesus, which goes back to the first point, that knowing the scriptures is an important part of knowing and experiencing God. That as we compare and test all things against scripture, we can come in and read it and understand it and question and have healthier questions and healthier dialogues because Jesus does reveal the nature and truth of the Father and his creation. We see that Jesus believed and owned all of the Old Testament. So even if you're struggling with parts of the Old Testament, I would say look to Jesus and read the Gospels and see what he bought into about God of the Old Testament. Because you'll look and see that God is also the God of the Old Testament that is in the New Testament. And that Christ was there in the beginning at the creation of all things. If you want to see God, you look to Jesus. And if you want to experience the power of God, you follow Jesus. If you want to see God, you look to Jesus. If you want to experience the power of God, you follow Jesus. The last thing is this. I think we, let me correct that. I think at times in my ministry, in my understanding of Jesus, We've presented God as a God who is powerless over those who have not yet chosen him. That's biblically false. The third point is this, the eternal God is the God over all eternal beings. All humans have been created in the image of God. They matter to God, he loves them. 
but I don't know about you, that there's been a time where my theology was, well, until they will will themselves to trust in God, then God is a gentleman and his hands are off. That, that's very scary. Because if you read in Romans chapter eight, that the mind set upon the flesh is hostile towards God. That the effect of sin has permeated throughout our entire self and being and soul. That the wages of sin is death. Left to ourselves, it's death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So that if God is unable to be God over all creation and have authority over all creation with or without our permission, then I would say we're in trouble. Fortunately, that is not what the Bible teaches. The reason Jesus didn't just blow off the Sadducees and say, y'all don't even believe in the resurrection. I'm not even gonna... I'm not even gonna take time to think about, you're ridiculous. Because their statement, I mean, compared to like healing people and telling truth and stuff like that, it was just a waste of time. So Jesus confronting them isn't just to correct them or demean them, Jesus confronting them is an evidence that they matter to him. So people that you don't agree with or people who don't agree with you, it doesn't mean that they don't matter to God. What it does mean is that we need the power of God and the instruction of God in his word to guide us as we engage. It's amazing to me, and, and I, as I've told you, I've blocked most of my newsfeed on Facebook, but occasionally on the app I see stuff and th there's this thing that came out during the storm called the Nashville Statement, which talks about um, historical, theological, biblical views of family and marriage and men and women roles. And then there was several other groups making all their new statements and people are all freaking out towards each other. But I have to remind us, John the Baptist was beheaded because he stood up for traditional biblical marriage. He told Herod, hey, you're in sin for marrying your brother's wife. And that's why he had him beheaded. We're acting like this is a whole new thing that people are trying to do or this group is, no, no, no. Let us stay faithful to the God who made us and the God who instructs us through his word. Let us obey the Jesus who saves us and let us remember even when we're disagreeing with other people, we, we should not devalue them. We should learn together. We should go back to the authority of the scriptures and we should constantly be living and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. The root issue of all sin is unbelief. They're not believing what is true about God and instead they're believing lies. And so are we. It's when Jesus talks about do not judge lest you too be judged. He's not saying that we aren't ever supposed to provide judgment. He says before you do that, take, a, take an assessment of yourself. Humble yourself before a holy God. Empty out and confess what sins are yours to own and where you're missing God and allow God's presence and holiness to humble you so that you might engage in dialogue, not with condemnation, but with curiosity. What led you to that belief? Can you help me understand how we've gotten here? Because Jesus could have just blown this group off, especially this group. I mean, this is objectively, if you read it in the context of the other ones, this is pretty ridiculous. They don't, they don't even believe in resurrection. It's kind of like when I was speaking at a youth camp and I did a, a mistake, I did a Q&A, question and answer, 
sixth graders through 12th graders. I had some very thoughtful questions. I had some very boneheaded questions. But because all people, they matter to God, we respect them and show dignity doesn't mean we agree with them or that we completely lock arms, but that we come and seek understanding. Why? Because we're not worshiping a God that is a God of the dead. We're, we're worshiping a God of the living. Our God hasn't tapped out and checked out. Our God is engaging, pursuing, and saving those who are far from him. The primary means that he's using are vessels like you and I as spiritual midwives to declare and to live out the gospel through action so that when we open our mouth to a family who's lost everything and say the reason, our motive for doing these things isn't because we're good people. The motive for us doing these things is because we serve a good God. And if you know God, we want you to be encouraged that he hasn't forgotten you. Let our presence, let our help be reminders to you that you are not forgotten by God. And if you do not know God, we want you to know that the way that people are stepping in to serve and to help is the way that Jesus stepped into our life as well. He comes in to rearrange, to change, to liberate, to free, and to rebuild in his image for his glory. We do so as people because the resurrection is true. We do so as people because the promise of the resurrection isn't just this life 2.0. It's that we get to be in the direct presence of our Savior Rejoicing with brothers and sisters in different sort of ways, in different sort of shape that is beyond our comprehension of what we know today. But God has promised and God is faithful and he's proved his faithfulness because the grave is empty. There's a promise of resurrection and a fullness of life for those who are in Christ Jesus. What it means to be in Christ is to come to understand and realize that you have sinned against God, that you have not followed God's law, that you have disobeyed him, that you have not loved him with all that you are, and you have not loved your neighbor as you love yourself, which I'll be teaching on next week in the next section of chapter 12. That all of us are guilty of breaking those two great commandments, and all the other laws and prophecies are built upon that. And so we're all in the same place. It's not that we are better than other people because we've quote-unquote figured it out. It means that we are all sinners separated from God, but those of us who know Christ, God has been kind and has made himself known to us, not just so that we can enjoy God later, but so that we can make him known now. There's a promise of resurrection and fullness of life for those who are in Christ. And if you have yet to take on Christ, to place your hope and trust in Christ, today's the day. If you're here today and you've heard all this and you realize, man, I don't know Jesus that way Maybe you've known religion, maybe you've practiced things and tried to be a good person, but if you're really honest, is your goodness compared to a perfect God matching his perfection? Let me help you as a pastor and a friend and a fellow human. No. But he's made a way by sending his perfect son, Jesus, to live, to die, to rise again, to go to the right hand of the Father and he'll be back. So then our hope we have is that God is a living God He's a faithful God. He's a loving God. Let's pray.